Welcome, everyone, back to the broadcast for a post-Christmas broadcast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined on this beautiful December morning by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? I'm well, Dave. How are you? I hear, I feel in very Star Wars uh, kind of terms, I feel your vibration closer to me at this moment. Oh yeah, there has been a disturbance in the force just around yes. LAX. I landed not 45 minutes ago, and my dedication to you, the listener, is that I immediately jumped on this podcast. With wow, I, everyone should absolutely... I mean, you didn't you didn't drive to Disneyland with two young kids. Nope. You, yeah, you, you decided to do a podcast. I decided to jump on Skype and say, hey, Tracy, how's it going? So hey, are you are. going to go to Disneyland while you're here? I don't know. So we went... So the thing is, like, look, I'm not Mr. Megabucks. Like, you gotta... If you go to Disney these days, it's like a no. thousand bucks. I don't know how people do it. I, I mean, we have annual passes, and I, I look... I see people walking through there with two or three kids, and just between the annual... The, the tickets to get in, the food, the parking, and if you're staying in a hotel, I mean, holy crap. I know. It's a... It's amazing. Well, uh, the, I, the thing is, the thing is, if you go there with young kids, you come away a hundred percent. It was worth it. Like I always feel like that. I'm like, oh, that was that was really like it was immersive. It was fun. It was great. But it's also like, if I did that like three times a year, like we would be living on the street. Do you really think it's because as an annual pass holder, and we had this big long thread on Bro about it. Sometimes the majority of the times now it's almost not worth it just because of the crowds. Well, you got to so time crowded. it right. So I went. Well, when I, I, I know I am timing it right. I believe me, I'm a master of timing this. I've got charts, and <laughs> I mean it's. But more and more, it's getting very difficult to find a time that isn't crowded. Well, so I'm speaking as from the perspective of a once every like year or two person. Yes, and that is, it's still totally worth it because look, I'll come out on an off week and I'll go on like a random Tuesday and yeah, okay. There'll be a few lines that are pretty bad. And, and you know, you got to do the smart thing, which is just leave the park from like 1 PM to 4 PM. Uh, but if you do those two things, you're going to have a nice time. It's going to be great. Yeah. What we've been doing is we go and stay overnight in a local hotel, a cheap hotel and then walk in. So we get in probably like at six o'clock, spend the whole night, then get up and do the morning to That's early nice. afternoon, and then we're out. But man, we did it two times ago. It was great. That was in November, and it was it was a great trip. There was no one there, and then we did it right after Thanksgiving on that Monday, which you thought would be a time. And all the places say all the sites say good time to go. Nah, it was it was still packed. Yeah. Well, it's, I wonder if there's a little bit of the Waze effect going on now, which is that with all those sites, like, is it packed and like all those different things, encouraging people to go on certain days based on historical data, that then all the people go that way, they yeah. go that day, and then suddenly that's a bad time. I think it's just, there's just way, I mean, we talked about it on the board, there are just too many people going to Disneyland and they're trying to manage it with that one program of widening lanes and that whole thing. And but they're they're just allowing too many people in the park, and it's just a massive money grab because the annual passes, the annual passes I used to have with my kids when they were young, and they were two hundred ninety dollars. The equivalent of those passes now are eleven $1 hundred bucks a year. 
And that was not that long ago. Yeah, I mean, my parents, who were, like, my dad was a mailman, and my mom didn't work at the time, um, they were able to take us to Disneyland every single year for our birthdays, because it was cheap enough. Like, it was, yeah. I think back when I was growing up, it was like maybe 40 bucks a, a kid, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's truly amazing. Anyway, but you should go. We've put it off, <laughs> we've put it off long enough, Tracy, we, we, we now... I'm, unfortunately, we have to talk about UCLA athletics. The, the the listeners will will get vocal if we do. You talk. know what we could talk about? We could just talk a little bit about uh, booze too, because yeah. I want to give a big scout out to shot to Scott. He drove from Camarillo into Westlake Village to hand me off a Blanton's, which was just above and beyond. I was going to buy him breakfast and lunch and. Everything, but he didn't. He was just so great to hand this off to me. And I, I mean, it, it's have you? Are you a bourbon guy? I don't think we've ever talked about this. So, as with most things alcoholic, I am um, I'm a general um, appreciator, uh, but I don't think any of it tastes good. Like it's it's all fine. It's 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 all functional for me. Okay, then that I understand that. But then when you get into some pretty high end stuff. It tastes good, man. It is really good. Yeah. It, there, I mean, you can get to the stuff where there's no burn, and it's just kind of sweet and a little smoky, and it's just – and that's this stuff. I, that's that's Yeah. I always go back to my thought on the whole thing, which is if we were really drinking all this stuff for the – like if we were really just drinking for pleasure, right, we'd be drinking so much damn chocolate milk. We'd be drinking chocolate milk all the time. Uh, that's uh, completely true. And you, it's funny because chocolate milk would be my number one thing. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. Or Yoohoo's. I love Yeah, no, Yoo-Hoo. give me a Yoohoo. Give me a Nesquik. Give me some homemade. Whatever. All that stuff's yeah. great. Yeah. But that, that, that's not the reason we're drinking alcohol. Come on. That's true. That's true. But just the, the fact that it's alcohol, what it does to you, that warm feeling, not just beyond getting to talk, that makes it, if you find one that, tastes good that's the that's a better experience pour some whiskey and some chocolate milk and go to town (laughs) okay i'm gonna try that right now with my plans i think you really should look it's the day after christmas why not um okay and one more thing pliny the younger for the first time ever is going to be released in bottles this february first time okay wow wow Wow. it's big time yep okay so we do have to talk about ucla sports Okay. I know, I know, I know. Not a not a Christmas gift anyone wants, but here we are. Um, early signing day, early signing period. What are we calling yes. it? Are we calling it day or period? That's really interesting because every time I write it, I kind of – it used to be National Signing Day, yep. but that was the first day of the signing period. Sure. So if we're going for that, I'm saying early signing day. I think that's fine. Because we called it National Signing Day before when it was a period, and now this is a period, and – First day of the early signing period is just too much, so I, I'm just shorthanding it to the early signing early signing day. Okay, so UCLA, um, obviously there's still a little bit of room left to go. Um, they signed 18 guys, um, but as of now, I'm going to give everyone the nuts, nuts and bolts. Uh, it's the 28th ranked class in the country, the 4th ranked class in the Pac-12. So these are big upticks from where it was a month and a half ago. Um, big headliner on the signing day was Damian Sellers, uh, the four-star outside linebacker. Um, he was the, he's really the headliner for the class. Um, and then notes on the class, just generally speaking, I would say there are 
so 18 signees. Of those 18 signees, 17 of them projected linebacker? <laughs> I'm just uncertain about Parker McCory's athleticism, but I think everyone else. Uh, Parker McCory might have the size. You know, that's the kind of size they were looking for, side? an outside, outside yeah. linebacker. Yeah, be a strong side guy, like somebody yeah. who can just kind of hold the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of linebackers, a lot of out-of-state guys. Those are two of the interesting notes about it, but um, certainly closed stronger than they were looking at the beginning. What were your main takeaways from uh, from this haul on signing day? Uh, mostly mixed. Um, Damian Sellers was was a big was a big get. I, I mean, and if you take him away from this class, I think it more or less isn't. A, a, a really stellar class, even despite the the ranking, mm-hmm. because the rank the rankings don't ever really take in consideration, and and it'd be very difficult to do it. Um, needs of position, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, roster management. Just uh, they, it just go it goes by rankings, you know, of each individual player and adds up point score, and that's about the only way you could do it. Um, without Damian Sellers. I don't think this is a really uh, – there are too many things that are negative about the class, in my opinion. Um, I'm not – I'm a real critic of loading up on one position in one year. Yeah, nothing, obviously. Nothing ever, nothing ever comes good of it. Even if you get a couple of starters out of that, and we're talking they sign seven to maybe nine <laughs> linebackers, let's say – depending on who you count as a linebacker. Uh, remind me if I'm, if I'm off here, but do how many linebackers are on the field at any given time? Oh, well, in this, in this defense, really at most four. Okay. Crazy. And obviously you need some backups, but sure, sure, sure. when they all come in in one year, people know that they are not going to play when it all shakes out. Right. So when you bring in so many in one year, they're more pro- you are more prone to transfer combined with out of state guys who are just naturally more prone to transfer. Wow, I, I just that's tough when you're dedicating so you can you have twenty five to give a year and you've dedicated seven to nine of those guys at linebackers and you're probably bound to to lose a few of them when. I, I understand you have a you had a need and but that was because you were making up for poor roster management and recruiting in the other two cycles that you've had. Yeah. Uh, so not a big advocate of that. Uh, on top of it, I you know maybe I'm just flat out wrong, but I think you always need to be recruiting offensive linemen and defensive linemen. You have to overstock that. That's those are the two positions where you would you have to over recruit because the hit rate is just low on those guys. Um, they took two offensive linemen, uh, as I've written about many times. I think that comes from a roster analysis where they think there are a number of younger guys on offensive linemen on that roster that are going to be contributors, and I'm skeptical. You can't just count up 15 guys and say, hey, we have 15 offensive linemen on scholarship, so we're good. If nine of those can't play, that that number doesn't really hold up. Um, and I'm not saying there are nine that can't play, but I'm just saying there are a few guys that are – we're skeptical whether they will be contributors. 
Um, In my experience of doing this, a lot of times it is a factor, a big factor that coaches just can't self-scout and evaluate their own players. Um, And then defensive line, we've seen it so much. Uh, watching UCLA recruiting and UCLA defensive line play and roster management. And you need to bring in some interior guys, at least one guy every year. And so far they haven't done that. Keanu Tanavasa, the kid from Mission Viejo, is the one interior defensive lineman that's still on the board that's going to be a late signee. But more probably he is going to end up – uh, sign and send LDS mission kids. So you don't even have him on your roster for at least two years and probably not playable for three. And then he's, t- <laughs> I just keep piling on and he's not the national level intent is null and void after two years. So you have, he's a, you have to recruit him again anyway. So I don't really get their approach to offensive line or defensive line. I think it's just a matter of, that they are evaluating their needs differently than than I am, quite simply. And but I have to say, over the last two years, we've been saying, "Wow, they really need linebackers. <laughs> Why aren't they taking many linebackers in the 2019 class? I, I just don't get it." And then they load up with seven to nine of them now, which, you know. You don't lose seven linebackers in one year and then recruit seven, and magically those seven newcomers are immediate contributors that are going to replace a lot of the guys you that that just left. So let's let's go through these just so everyone knows who we're talking about and why we keep saying all these guys are linebackers. So Damian Sellers, obvious edge rusher guy, right? Yes. Outside linebacker, whatever you want to call him. Uh, Shea Bryant Struther, are we, we're projecting him inside. Uh. I think they've recruited him as an inside linebacker. He, I think he has versatility where he could play both. Um, he's a really, he's, I think he's got a lot of upside and all those measurables, but he played primarily outside linebacker on his high school team. So if he plays inside, there's going to be a learning curve. And I think there's going to be a learning curve anyway. His high school coach says, you know, he's like a bull in a china shop. He's right. not like a refined kid. So yeah, and then- either way, let's just say either way. And Agude, are we just projecting him general rush guy? Who is that? Agude, Mitchell Agude. Yeah, general rush guy. We'll see if he can actually drop into coverage, if he has that kind of flexibility, or if he's just, you know, a a smaller size kind of situational defensive end rush guy. You know, kind of of a Oduizabor type. Right. And then we're counting Mestador, J-Max Jacobson also in that kind of ambiguous zone. Yes, I think Mestador is probably pretty close in play in in his game and his body and athleticism uh, to Agude. Uh, I think J. Max Jacobson is is uh, a defensive end. If sure. it, he's probably two forty ish now, he has the way he plays the body. He'll end up two by the time he gets to the point where he's playing. He's two sixty five, two seventy. And he's a defensive end, I think. Then Caleb Johnson, we're projecting him inside. Inside. Undersized, maybe six foot, 220. And then Miles Jackson, where do we have him? 
uh, in his high school, only played defensive end. Um, so he is a rush linebacker. UCLA sees him as both potentially inside or outside. I think they first primarily recruited him as an inside linebacker. Right. Uh, so that's going to take some sorting out on where getting him on the field, seeing what he is, and then developing him either way because he's still a raw player. Right. Then Yoholani Ross, is that, am, I, am I getting that yes. right? Cool. Yeah. Great. Uh, almost, I think, as uh, an outside rush linebacker. Right. Don't I? But I don't think he necessarily has the ability to drop into coverage because uh, he was primarily a defensive end. Sure, Jeremiah Trojan inside, inside, uh, and then Jaquari Price uh, outside. I think both. Uh, I think he has the 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 flexibility and athleticism to be an inside linebacker. He just would have to get bigger, and has a natural pass rushing ability. Okay, so, so of, how the, does eight, that sort of out? the eighteen signees. Eight of them are guys who don't have anything to do with either being a outside rush guy or an inside linebacker, just so everyone's clear. Then in the commits section, you have uh, Jake Newman, who many are thinking might end up linebacker. Oh, wait, you didn't mention uh, Jonathan Vaughn. And I'm getting to Jonathan Vaughn. Okay, sorry. Just in the guys who haven't signed yet. Right. Um, so Jake Newman and Jonathan Vaughn, both of whom potentially are going to be linebackers. Yeah, uh, one of those, you know, box safety types. They're both big kids. Um, when I saw Jonathan Vaughn at uh, a camp last spring working at safety, I didn't think he was the safety. He looked 210, 215. He was pretty thick. Uh, probably hadn't played a lot of football recently because he had been playing ba- uh, baseball, but just didn't look really capable of of coverage <laughs> of staying with a guy and only his body's only going to get bigger. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. So 12. So that's 12 of 22 guys who are either edge rushers of some sort or inside linebackers. Yes, that is bad. That is not that. That's not just a difference in approach. That's just bad. That's bad recruiting. Um, so yeah, it's a 28th ranked class, but I don't, I don't necessarily rate this one above last year because the class balance, again, is just very bad. The fact that they didn't take linebackers last year, they only took, I think it ended up being, I think it ended up being four just because we're now saying Carl Jones is a linebacker. Uh, But at the time, I don't think he was taken as a linebacker. I think he was taken as a defensive back and then moved, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. So, and yeah, and they lost one of those guys already who went back. Right. So this is, I mean, this is, this is really awful class balance and they are doing it again in this class by only taking two offensive linemen. Um, and then uh, just to rewind uh, and remember the two thousand, that was the 2019 class, 2018 class where we were throwing up red flags saying, Hey, you know, all those, uh, linebackers are all going to, that are on your roster are all going to graduate in the next year. Yeah, who did who did they take that year? They took Bo Calvert. Yeah, Bo Calvert. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's almost like what's the affliction where you can't see, you can't project or see anything that's a that's abstract, but you only literally see what's right in front of you. 
being bad at roster management. That's okay, the, that's, that's what the affliction. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's being bad at a fundamental part of the job. Like, and you heard Chip Kelly fundamental. Say, Chip Kelly say, "Well, we lost seven guys, so we had to go out and get seven guys." That's not the way it works. That's not the if way you're, this if works. You're, if you're projecting, like, you have to project up to two to three years ahead when you're recruiting because guys aren't going to come in and immediately play as freshmen. Or we're just going to be in this perpetual, like, eternal cycle of, well, we just got a really young team. We just got a really young team, you know? Okay, you gotta, so let's gotta, take that. Let's these, take young, that these young baby Bruins are growing up every time they win a game and go 4-8. and eight. It's <laughs> just, no. That's that's just setting yourself up for failure. So let's take that with, with, with defensive line, then. I mean, all three of the interior defensive line guys are all will all be juniors next year. Yep. Um, Martin Andrews blew out his ACL. Uh, and, and personally, really, Atito Ogbanya, I, I didn't think had a great year. To me, I've always thought he was an offensive lineman the first time I saw him on Spalding Field. Yeah. Antonio Moffey had a, a decent year, I think. And I know they're going away from a defense that, that uses big in, interior defensive linemen, but you still need them. There's Tyler Manoa, who is more of a kind of an oversized defensive end. Yep. Who's probably an offensive lineman, too. Um, and then Daytona Jackson. who uh, Manoa will be a junior. Daytona Jackson will be a senior. Steven Mason. And these are defensive ends. Will be a junior. Odigazua will be a redshirt senior. Isabor will be a junior. I mean, Elijah Wade, if he redshirts, which will be the only defensive lineman returning who's a sophomore or younger. And then J. Max Jacobson would be a true freshman. I mean, <laughs> sophomores, freshmen, or redshirt freshmen next year, defensive linemen, I'm counting defensive ends, and I'm counting J. Max Jacobson. You have two. That's the, they're they're going to repeat. Are you saying that's gonna, bad? They're going to repeat the same thing. And then next, next signing day, when they lose, one, you know, Four defensive linemen, one transfers, one has a medical redshirt, and they're going to say, oh, well, we tried to sign five defensive linemen because we're losing four. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. isn't the way you do this. But So much you know, of this isn't the way you do it. I mean, and also, we're, like, if we're... We're just internet guys, Dave. No, I mean, but th- that's the thing. That's That's the thing. Is okay. that it's it's this is such a stupidly fundamental part of the job that even we can look at it and say, oh yeah, that's that's a real screw up, and feel like because I always feel like a little uncomfortable saying that about like actual coaching stuff, like you okay. know what kind of offense you're going to run. I mean, look, I'll have an opinion because I have an opinion about everything, but like this is one where it's like you're just counting bodies and you're counting them two years ahead of time. And you're doing a little bit of math to figure out what your usual attrition rate is. That's it. It's all you're doing. And maybe yeah. if you want to get even deeper into it, you might look at, well, do the, guy, the guys we have, are they any good? So, like, when I'm looking at this class, I also look at, well, hey, what happened to the secondary this year? Like, I'd be doing some self-assessment there. Was that us or was that the players? Um, you know, was it scheme or was it the players? And if it's the players, which it certainly seems based off the um, – you know, general commentary uh, after games this year, uh, 
it certainly seems like that's the case among the coaching staff. They do believe it's the players. How do you only bring in two corners? Yeah. I it's mean, because it's just, going into the going into the cycle, they thought they were loaded, given the performance from the year before. And the guys a lot of this comes down to one simple thing. They recruit guys, they bring them in, and even when they see them in practice, they don't they think they're good. They only they think, they think they're good in practice and then they forget they're good when they're talking about them after games. And by they I mean Chip Kelly. Yes. <laughs> they think they're good though. They they delude themselves and there's so many things that go into and I'm not just talking UCLA coaches. Um they delude there's so many things that go into them deluding themselves. They don't like to recruit. Yeah. They'd rather convince themselves they've got a lot of talent and they don't have to recruit. Uh they want to reaffirm that they did get that steal. You know, they found that guy who was under-recruited and he's going to be really good. Um, they're, they're all getting better because they're, they have to tell themselves they're good coaches and they're developing these guys. There's just so much to go into it to convince themselves. I mean, we'll talk about one more. How about, how about running back? <laughs> Uh yeah, how about it? How about how about running back, Tracy? Do you think? I mean, based on what you've understood from the offense the last couple of years, do you think running backs a, like oddly important part of this offense? I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb right now, and I don't know if this is much of a limb. If they don't find a guy who can competently replace uh, Joshua Kelly, and I don't even know what my bar, how low the bar is in that like a thousand yard rusher or let's say which is not that difficult these days when you have 12 when you're playing 12 games oh i believe we're going to find out exactly how difficult it is in this offense <laughs> and and you looked at your roster and, and this is coming out of last season and you saw joshua kelly and you said this offense needs a guy who can carry the ball 25 times a game between the tackles and get those and get those needed four to five yards. And they recruited a guy, you know, not not to rag on the kid, but Nathaniel Jones, who was coming off an ACL, um, who was unproven, and really, you know, didn't really go after anyone else kind of who fits that kind of role while they have a lot of guys who are like the smaller scat back guys. Right. And then, I mean, I didn't even know the time, but Rashad, Rashad white is what October is when, and I think that I literally think that was a reaction. Like they're in practice, August, September, and they're going, wait, Holy crap. <laughs> we don't have any kind of Joshua Kelly guys on this, in this depth chart. We better go out and find one. So they go out and find kind of this under-recruited, fairly unknown, but, you know, looked good, decent on, but probably raw, but looked decent on tape guy in Rashad White. And now still right now trying to find a second guy. Yeah. That's, that's just, that's poor roster management, poor recruiting planning, I think. While, yeah. while they have... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They have nine running backs on scholarship next year. Yeah. And they can't, they, 
I mean, Martel Irby might be better than we think. I don't think he's a Joshua Kelly at that level. I like him, though. I think he's still kind of a backup role type of guy. Do the coaches like him? Because his role reduced this year. He was hurt. He was injured, remember, for a sure. few games. Sure. But his role was reduced. Uh, um, I don't. I, I think they might have looked and thought, Jamal, Jamal McClendon, the freshman, he's not the answer. Maybe Martel Irby isn't the answer either. And that they suddenly realized that in October. Oh, okay. While um, you have, we have to list them. Just Demetric <laughs> Felton, who you know, that role that he plays is probably the same role that Casimir Allen. You would think is going to play that same role that Christian Grubb would play. Keegan and Jones. Ke- and Keegan Jones. Yeah. Okay. I, I that had to be mentioned. It's not great. Talking, it's not great. I'm actually looking at some of these linebacker types and wondering if any of them played running back. <laughs> well, that was the one thing I was like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> and then they're going after they're going <laughs> they're going after <laughs> they're going after the kid from New Jersey, who is a four star running back. Um, Bender, but he doesn't really even want to play. He doesn't want to be an every down running back. It's awesome. It's great. It's good for his long term health, and I'm appreciative of that. I think And then they were going that. after the Leneth Leneth Whitehead, mm-hmm. who UCLA had a little a little advantage because they were recruiting him as a running back. And if you looked at him on tape, he looked like completely a linebacker. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Well, it's you get just, him in the program, and then you move him to linebacker, and then you've got you're going to run that vaunted what like two seven two defense. But you still you still don't get that running back. No, but you can have a really really interesting defense. That's the most important thing to be interesting, um, and going out of region to get a quarterback who had a uh, by all accounts uh, really poor senior year. I wouldn't say poor. I mean, he was injured. He's in an offense that doesn't throw the ball, but not, we'll say not stand out. Wasn't blowing anyone away. Yeah. And then they were scrambling to try to find a second quarterback. Yeah. Scrambling. Scrambling. I mean, this is not good evaluation all the way around. Yeah. Um, And that is a note that I do want to, I know I brought it up on the last one, but this was six signees completely out of the region. Um, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve of the 18 signees from out of California. Just, and we know, go ahead and you make, I know what you think about that. And we both think about that. Uh, absolute trash. Um, what, what, what Chip Kelly <laughs> Wait, said, Dave, give the, it to me straight. The, the one thing he, so I thought he was actually pretty good in his signing day presser, um, but the one thing he said that made me do like a triple take was when he said, "Oh, and quarterback, you got to go out of state for that." Um, what? I'm sorry, sir. What? California. So throughout the, even the year, like whatever year it is, it doesn't really matter. The best quarterbacks in the country are more or less always in California. But okay, don't throw out the year. The best quarterbacks in the country are from California. Just, I mean, fully nuts. And even like if you went down a level, you can still find a guy in California. I mean, look, Parker McCory might end up great. I don't know. I mean, I have never seen him in person, so I have no idea. 
Um, my inkling is that he he's probably fine. Um, you can find a probably fine guy in California, even if you don't get one of the superstar types. You don't yeah. for what they're getting out of state. You don't need to go out of state for this. That's the crazy part to me. Like you can get most of these guys just looking around in your own backyard. So what's the deal? I want to see a gif of you doing a triple take. Yeah. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, three, three times. Yeah. Three, yeah. three times. Um, but what, like, what are you going out of state for to get these guys? Like, it's one thing when Jim Mora early on was recruiting out of state because they were pulling guys. Like, they were pulling legit dudes, and some of them didn't pan out even then. Like, even when you're pulling four or five star guys from out of state, the odds of them like eventually like matriculating um, or you know graduating at UCLA slim. Like it's not as it's not as uh, robust a thing as California because homesickness is like a big part of this whole thing. I, it just it does not one make of the sense reasons, to me. One of the reasons you go out of state is because sometimes your in-state reputation in recruiting isn't isn't great. Yes, like the local the local schools are more in tune, kind of, with the reputation of your program locally. I think. I think it's a big question mark among the UCLA program is a big question mark among local LA high schools and programs. Um, nationally, I think recruits just feel, Hey, it's Chip Kelly. Oh, you know, I'll go play for Chip Kelly. Yeah. They, they probably don't. And they'll get most of their input about the program from the coaches recruiting them. They're not yeah. hearing it from everyone around in Southern California. So, oh God, people are going to hate us for this, for this podcast. Why do you think so? <laughs> I don't know. I just want to give them a little bit of holiday cheer. I should go get some bourbon. Yeah, I think we would have needed to record before the holiday. Um, yeah, there, there's no holiday cheer here. None of it. Um, um, what's your take on... Paul Rhodes leaving. I heard, I think the feeling was that he wanted to, you know, to be a defense coordinator and maybe like get, get back to being a head coach. So that wasn't a surprise, but the fact that he took the Arizona defense coordinator job took UCLA a little bit by surprise that that happened that fast. Yeah, I think, um, so internal politics, I don't know. Um, but I would say the, the, the takeaway for me is I think he might actually end up doing a good job at Arizona or a fine job. I think he's probably fine. Um, my, I think there were two things going on with the secondary this year, um, and I think the larger part of it was what they were being asked to do. And I don't know how much of that was coming from the position coach or how much of it was coming from the overarching defensive staff. Um, but I think their, their jobs were simply too complex, I think, at the beginning of the year. Um, That's gen- I wrote that. If you didn't read that, that the general takeaway when when there is such a, di- a digression or a regression, sorry, yeah. in in performance like that, is that it, they're o- the, they're overloading the players with too much. Yeah, and then some of it, I think, was just um, a lack of development. I think some of these guys just didn't. It, it, even doing some of the similar stuff they were doing last year, they didn't look as good doing it, which is about the only way we can judge player development. Um, so I don't know. I think he was kind of average as a secondary coach. Um, 
I, I, I don't think there's the same skill set involved in being a position coach as there is as being a coordinator or even being a head coach. So I think he might be better at that role. Um, but it's certainly a, a gap now. Um, and the fact that it took UCLA at least somewhat by surprise is not great. Um, Chip Kelly has not shown a robust um, Rolodex, I would say, at this point. Um, seems to be mostly old friends. So we'll see. I think, like I wrote, uh, I think we can expect beyond just finding a secondaries coach, I think there's a possibility that there still can be changes on the staff. And that's really the best way to put it right at this point. Does he have any old, other old friends to hire? I, I won't comment on that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I think there might be you know, some people who, what did he say? What did he say? Um, you know, the, nobody I'm has not, told me they're retiring yet. Is I think right. basically what he said. Right, or or moving to another job or something. No yeah. one's told me that yet. So I think that's the way. There's a possibility that some changes could happen, and it will be couched that way. Yeah. Well, I don't think they actually absolutely know what they're doing at this point, but I think there is a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that first part of that really hit it on the head. I don't think they know what they're doing at this point. Um, <laughs> oh, hey, it's oh, really hey. it's really cool. You're you're just going full on. I'm I'm uh I'm yeah. I'm, I'm having a good time. Having a yeah, great time. I think you're having the you're drinking a little right now. <laughs> just drinking that haterade. All all inhibitions are just being shed. Right. Yeah, this it's a beautiful thing. Should we talk um, some basketball? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk basketball. Uh, I was in Las Vegas. Yeah, I saw that. I heard that. I yeah. felt that. Um, I'm. Uh, it's funny too because people ask me, well, "Why are you more optimistic about the basketball program?" And you know, I, I'm just playing odds here, going with that Vegas theme. Um, just playing odds that a coach who just came from a program where he given the expectations of that program that he lived up to those expectations or exceeded them with his style of play his recruiting if you take that guy and you put him at ucla where he is now going to get probably recruited a higher level and he has a coaching style and approach that has been as overachieved where he was previously you it's of course it might fail so many people have gone have had that formula and it's failed the guy has but odds are he's he's gonna do okay yeah as opposed to chip kelly whose last iteration of was in the nfl where he went i know you probably have this number right on off the top of your head what was his record in the nfl um, you don't. You don't. You don't. I don't. I, I well. I, I don't care. But so his last <laughs> year was two and fourteen. He had a six and ten and two ten and sixes. Is that right? Right. So, and and running the same kind of scheme and concept, just coming off something like that had been successful. That's not the football program. This is all just kind of an experiment. And Mick Cronin isn't an experiment. No. Now, could Mick Cronin fail? Absolutely. But the odds are better that he won't because he's doing something that was just most recently proven to be successful. Right. So that's why I am more 
optimistic about the and plus you know in basketball recruiting you only got to get three guys a year and you're recruiting to ucla basketball which has a lot more uh, power in recruiting than ucla football yeah so it's it's an easier thing so that's why i'm more optimistic and you know talking about that game north carolina it was it was a slog and a mess, but there were a few things in there that I took a little bit of encouragement from. I guess uh, the press, um, one, two. I thought offensively there was a little bit. To me, it felt like uh, it looked like a few a few guys were a little bit more confident in what they were doing. Chris Smith, even though he turned the ball over a number of times looked like he was putting the ball on the floor and trying to drive because, you know, just a lot more confidently. A few guys were starting to do that. It wasn't much, but there were a few things to me that looked a little bit better. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I thought, honestly, even beyond just the press, I thought defensively, look, it wasn't perfect and there were still some issues, but I thought tech, like the technical side of it, like I thought everyone seemed to have a better idea of what they were actually trying to do on every possession. Um, you saw a lot more of, even when they weren't in the zone, the kind of, I forget what Cronin calls it, but like the eyes up, everyone, everyone got their eyes on the ball, um, every defensive possession, where it basically looks like a zone even when they're playing man. Um, yep. They were doing that more. Um, so there, there was some stuff that I was seeing that was like, okay, you can see this start to, you know, gel a little bit going forward. Um, I thought Chris Smith, I, I, to your point, I thought he had a really good, there was like a really, really good, like two or three minutes right to start the second half. He was a big part of that press and just what they were doing there. He just, to me, he just, it, it just seems still so unnatural for me watching him play and, and just, because it still seems like he's very much thinking about what he's trying to do every play. Um, and every time he makes a mistake or something goes wrong, he does the full like face in his hands thing and staring at the bench. And I think he just, he needs a real boost of confidence um, because he does have quite a bit of talent, but yeah, I mean, everything you said about the program generally is true. Um, and you know, I think Cronin's even what you're seeing now, I mean, the offense it is it's 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 a whatever offense. I mean, they're going to get some open looks, but it's going to be a grinding offense. I think that's just the nature of the beast for him. Um, but I am encouraged by the defense slowly starting to look more like what I was expecting from a Cronin defense. It's not by any means a finished product or really any good yet, but it's um, still a uh, you know still a uh, uh, you know looking better. So uh, one thing probably. Um, another takeaway from just being at that game and just being around the program a little now, uh, if I had a concern, I don't know if it's a concern. Um, Mick Cronin can be tough on these players mm -hmm. and whether how much you have guys buying in when you're really tough on them, when they weren't the guys you recruited could be a, could be a tough proposition there. It could it could lead to some shakeout of these guys. You know, these guys, I mean, let's just talk generally. Might have been a little soft. <laughs> and you have a really a, a tough coach who's going to be tough on you. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if they continue to buy in 
because there's a little bit of body language of where I think they're a little stunned at how tough Mick can be on him and how much he's demanding of them. I well, think as with most things, Tracy, I think of myself here as Goldilocks um, because we spent like the entire Alford era. Just like, why does he not use the bench with these guys to actually like, teach him something? Why, why won't he do that? And we get, we're like, oh, man, we, you know, UCLA just needs a coach that's going to use the bench. Like, really use it to teach these guys. And then Mick Cronin comes in, and, like, you make a mistake, you you walk your ass to the bench, and don't even, like, look at me. And it's like, well, maybe not that. Maybe, like, just somewhere in the middle. How about that? <laughs> yeah. 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 Not too hot, so I, not too cold. Yeah. That would right. be, that would be, that would be very interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah, the the one that I thought was and I, I, I couldn't peg what he had done on the previous possessions that made him do it, but the one that kinda got me was the perfectly good corner three that um Jaime Hawkes missed. Um yeah. and then he immediately got pulled for that. And I was like, was it just falling in love with his jump shot? Was that the reason he was pulled? Because he'd taken I think two threes before that too. But not like a, in immediate succession. It was just he had taken two threes before that. Right, I remember that shot. I thought it was a good shot. Yeah, it felt. I mean, it looked good, and it, that's the thing is, like, he's worried that guys don't know what a good shot or a bad shot is, and I'm like, well, maybe I don't know what a good shot or a bad. But shot But maybe is. we don't know. Maybe he had called a set that yeah, was yeah. for sure that was calling for uh, uh, them to execute an offense that was going to get someone else a look, and Jaime just kind of hijacked it and took that shot. Yeah, and sure, it's just. Yeah, I mean, that's totally right. Usually, though, you can kind of feel that or see that a little bit, and it just didn't, it felt completely in rhythm, so. Okay, well, if you can't notice from the way this thing is spliced together to this point, uh, my internet is horrible because I'm at my parents' house, and I don't think anyone's parents' internet is good. Like, Tracy, I know you are a parent, but your internet is probably not good. My, oh my lord. I know, I know. I I hate to say it, you hate to see it, but it's true. People, People come to my house and are just agog or amazed at my internet. I just want you to know. They're like, wow, I've, I've been to a lot of houses in my day, but the internet in this one all over, I got this really sophisticated mesh network too. You can be like far away and it's still picking. Don't you be tough. I love a good mesh network. Love a good mesh network. I'm going to go drink some more. You piss me off talking yeah, about my... I get it. Um, I get it. Do, uh, I sound like an, do I sound like an old guy? I yeah, do, that was though. great. That was beautiful. Um, so we're going to try to abbreviate the rest of this discussion and uh, more or less end it right here. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, overall, we've been... <laughs> it's been kind of an, I would say, a not optimistic... Why would you say that? Uh, podcast. Um, so let's talk about something and leave everyone on a really good note. Let's hear your opinion of Rise of Skywalker, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, a movie so dumb and pandering that it left me depressed leaving the movie theater. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my, like, if I was, like, writing a movie review, that's the one that I would put on, like, Rotten Tomatoes. Let me do this. Let me ask you this. How would you have ended that saga? Um, probably continuing literally any of the themes from the second movie, like literally any of them. Just pick one; it doesn't matter. Go pick but, one. Okay, so the whole idea about the you know the democratization of the force that we talked about in the last show, right? Where you got the uh-huh. little broom boy and all that kind of stuff. There's opportunity there to have like 
a bigger story, an inspirational story about the rest of the galaxy rising up or whatever. Instead, it ended up being much, actually much smaller about, and like, it was also very responsive and reactive to the criticism, to literally the like, um, angry, you know, emasculated dude criticism on the internet. That literally every choice was in response and in reaction and in support of that, which was just so bad. What would you have done with Kylo Ren? How would you tied him up? I don't know. (laughs) Man, I have no idea. No, I'm not. I'm not saying I need to write the story. I'm just saying that story sucked. I mean, and I kind of tend to agree. But here's my issue. You've got to you've got to resolve all of these storylines, and like I'm, in I what agree. way was his storyline resolved in any like actual well, way building on the character? Because that was he was an entirely spoilers. different character. So yeah, his story was resolved in a sense. We've had we probably should take this offline and just ignore our children and our families and argue this for the like the next eight hours. I mean, there was like. He he was building towards a really, really complex and interesting character. And then, basically, his mom contacting him through the Force is like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll be a good guy now. It's absolute dumb, piss-poor writing. It's the same guy it, who did it Batman. Wasn't that, By the it way, wasn't like the, there weren't some indications that he was struggling and that he couldn't go. I mean, he wasn't... Uh, I, I mean, to me, the thing that, if you're going to talk about that, why is Darth Vader suddenly like, you know, when Darth Vader dies, oh yeah, sorry, son. I mean, I mean, uh, that guy was pure evil. He never, at least with Ben, with Kylo Ren, you could see him struggling with the dichotomy of his soul, right? Yeah. At least there so were some leading last, up to that. Last Jedi played on that choice really in, an, in a really interesting way. Um, whereas J.J. Abrams just basically wants to do the same movies over and over again for eternity. Uh, Last Jedi played on it in an interesting way. When Snoke dies and then Rey and Kylo Ren fight off all those weird guys in the red capes, uh, then you have that moment where Rey thinks it's, she thinks it's the return of the Jedi moment. She thinks she has redeemed him, but the reality is no, he's making a different set of choices. Um, and that was really interesting. To then respond to that choice by saying, oh, no, 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 all it's going to take is his mom talking to him through the Force um and that's gonna really switch him did his mom never talk to him before like w- w- this is the same well, guy the, okay the, the, wait the, the, hold, on, hold, on, always... hold on hold on hold on okay, hold on okay go 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 the go, guy go, who wrote go, go. this thing is the same guy who wrote batman versus superman the the dc comics thing which right. has the exact same story beat the exact same thing which okay, is he's a he's a one-trick pony it's stupid <laughs> my problem is it's stupid not that it's a one-trick pony you could be a one-trick pony and have it actually be good I don't like much of Aaron Sorkin yeah. stuff, but the walk and talk and saying the same lines, that pitter-patter works. This doesn't. It's bad. It's bad writing. Um, see, here's the thing, too, though. I, this is what has happened, though. If you go back and watch the, the original Star Wars, I mean, it's bad writing. No, it's, it's not. hokey. No, it's it, horrible. it is 100% not bad writing, and it is tightly plotted. Tightly. Very tightly. You, you think so? A hundred percent. You so. think he knew when when uh, Luke kissed his sister? You think that George Lucas knew that they were going to be siblings kissing? No, 
No, okay, so if you're talking like super minor key events, no, I don't think he had the whole thing planned out, but the like a big one that people point out to is like it's just as much a coincidence that Leia's heading to Tatooine as it is that they find the Millennium Falcon in Force Awakens. And that's complete nonsense. The reason she's heading to Tatooine is to talk to General Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? I think the I think the original story was genius for for its vision of what it envisioned, given where everything was in the mid seventies. Absolutely. Is the story a sophisticated, well-written, I mean, the dialogue's not fantastic. No, the, uh, but that's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about writing. I'm talking about story and plot and theme. Yeah. The story's, uh, this is the story really that great. I mean, I mean it was a great it's, it's vision. A, it's a, it's, I think it's the quintessential horror hero's journey. Like it is, Probably even more than the, you know, original hero's journey. Like, it is 100% the quintessential one. And it's, like, so tightly written in that regard that it's been imitated, like, hundreds and hundreds of times for that. Not necessarily for the, like, sci-fi elements, but for the hero's journey that it does so well. I think you're right. I think it typifies a hero's journey really, really well. But I don't think it's brilliant story development... Or, or plot development or character development in any way. It, it crystallized that hero's journey that we had seen hundreds of times before, and it did it really well, and then people copied that type of formula. But I, I think we're all expecting way too much and just having to remember that this was a very simple story. It was just kind of a fantasy fable, and... There were so many disparate storylines that you, if you were going to try to tie up, and I'm not a big fan of J.J. Abrams, but if you were going to try to tie up, you were in a corner. There was nothing you could do with a lot of this stuff. And I, 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 I 100% disagree with that. He had so many interesting threads to just do something with. The great sacrifice of Luke Skywalker. How does that impact the galaxy? Like what happens there? Where, where the the actual way he does it, pure nonviolence. Like what what is that? What what what's interesting about that theme in light of the way these movies have gone? It's an interesting way to approach it. And then he decides, oh yeah, I'm gonna pick up zero of those threads, and I'm just gonna try to force feed you the third movie I would have done if I had done the second movie, which is what he did. I, I I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I do. I think this whole thing was written into a corner. I don't know what you could have done that would have satisfied most I, that of the people. Can't, that can't be your goal when you're making a movie. And if it oh, is, I you're think, making a Transformers movie. I so think it, thing, the, I think in a lot of ways it has to be when you're doing this kind of. No, when you're it, doing, it, it, it has to be when you're working for Disney, which is the unfortunate reality that we all need to grow accustomed to. The thing where I am struggling is even as a Disney property, um, it's it's a failure because look at what Marvel did. Marvel, they are pure comic book movies, which I would disagree that these are. They're not. I mean, they're much more thematically driven than just plot beat to beat to beat. Um, but even conceding that, the way the Marvel movies have been managed um, from a top-down level where the story is coherent and makes sense and has a direction at all times, uh, that was wildly missing in this trilogy. And do you know why? But what they did, what they did with Marvel, what they did just with the Avengers, 
from what I've read, they got together, I don't know how many years ago, 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They literally got in a room and said, okay, if this all works, <laughs> we're going to be able to make 27 movies and this is going to be the yep. storyline and we're going to hint about this here and hint about that there and drop in this story plot here. Star Wars was flying by the seat of the pants. No one did that. No yeah. one did that. And, and you, it, yeah. And it, you bring in all these different directors and writers who are taking off on it. I mean, who decided, who decides to bring in, to not go and sit in a room and plot out the entire storyline? Well, and it's one thing, I think they got caught in a weird middle ground because I don't even necessarily endorse the Marvel way of doing things for Star Wars, but in the reality of what they ended up doing with the trilogy, I think it would have been the way to go because they are making it very plot and lore oriented more than anything else. Um, so you should have just had Abrams direct all three, most likely, and have it be very, very storyboarded out, like the whole thing from the beginning. And you can't have any of J.J. Abrams' typical like mystery box crap. Um, no, I agree. What they, what, I agree. They, what they were doing initially, and this is what I've read, is they wanted to give the filmmakers freedom to kind of create their own vision, um, which I, I thought ended up very interesting with the second movie. That was the first movie where I was like, wow, this is something really original um, in this entire thing since, I mean, the prequels were original, but they were terrible. Um, but, you know, it was it was something that was, okay, wow, this is something else. Um, and then they just brought Abrams back for the third one because they, yeah. were, they were suddenly reactive to, the, to what in reality was a minority of fans who had an outcry about it. Majority of people liked that movie. Um, and then there were some people who just couldn't take that it was a different type of story. Um, I, I think it kind of it kind of proves out just by Rogue One. Rogue One was a one-off. They you could do anything with that movie. They there were no plot storylines that they had to adhere to. They could really do it. And that was I just rewatched it again. It's really it's it's holds up even better. Yeah, it's it's a good movie because. They could make a good movie as just a freestanding good movie. Yeah. There weren't all these other things they had to bring in that they had to tie up, that they had to develop that or uh, random a different director or writer didn't like that storyline. It, it, it was – that's the best thing that they've done. And it's, it's too bad that they wrote themselves that there wasn't a better overall coherent vision yeah, in, they needed in the a, whole Star Wars. If they were going to complete their idea, they needed a different third director. Like they needed somebody because look, The Last Jedi is a commentary on The Force Awakens as much as it is a commentary on every other movie in it. Like it, it basically dismisses a lot of the things Abrams introduced, like Snoke basically just having him get killed in that kind of jokey way. Yeah. Um, and it it does like, and the fact that like Luke is not, you know. He's he's just in pure exile out there and is like a hermit. That's also kind of you know, uh, I think going against what Abrams intended. Uh, making Ray a nobody is going against what Abrams intended. And now, if you had a third movie from somebody else who creates something that's a commentary on both those movies and it's like meta as well as a good capper to the story, it'd be really interesting. They just weren't willing to do that because a lot of um, you know angry people on Reddit didn't like the movie. So. Yeah. I think there are just too many different 
pressures and forces and stuff. And when you have all of that and you, you're deciding that you're going to try to make people happy, you're just not. So, yeah, but I, I still, why, what I got out of the movie was, was a few things. First off, Daisy Ridley is so strong in that role that imagine given the last three, if you hadn't had her and Adam driver, who's also a very good actor and they kind of carried it all. Um, to me also the original star Wars was about the whole friend group of Han Solo and Leia and, and Luke. And they, up until this point, Poe had never like even been with any of them in a, I mean, very, right. they, they at least put that back in because that was the original, well, in the original Star Wars, that's what it was all about. It was that camaraderie, right? That you had created a family, which ended up actually being your family, but you had created a family about from these different characters that you found across, across, you know, the galaxy. That's, I like that about this movie that it went back to that original kind of thing. And the one thing about, the one thing about Ray was that, yeah, okay. So, she, you know what? We shouldn't be giving a lot away, right? Or we're already like, we're 15 we're minutes into it. this, Tracy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but when it really came down to it, she was, uh, the thing about her past was that she was what she, her heritage was that she was adopted. Right. That's really and who adopted her? Who did she feel were her adoptive parents? Um, None of that so, made any sense. Like not a not a not a single bit of that. Okay. So if, if anything in that entire arc of movies had been her like surrogate dad, it would have been Han Solo. Like that didn't make any damn sense. Not the weird hermit who was mean to her on an island. And the other part of that is. It's so much less interesting for her, for her to be like the granddaughter of some random old dude. Like it doesn't like it's just it's so much less interesting thematically. Did you uh, think they were never going to bring Palatin back in? No, he died. The, that's the yeah. the whole thing is he died. He's he's dead. He like that was all very stupid. And it had so many things that were just like this isn't even a callback to something in Star Wars. This is a callback to Harry Potter. Like, this is friggin' Voldemort with his horcruxes. That's what this is. What do you um, think about bringing Jon Snow back? Also, well, that was in the book, so whatever. Do whatever you're gonna do. Um, but, man, it's all... It's just, it's tough. It was, it's really tough. And the people who did, who did Marvel and did the Avengers, they did it right because they, they planned it all out, they mapped it out, and they basically kind of stuck to it. And that made a big difference, I think. Yeah. I don't know, man. Bad movie. Bad <laughs> okay. movie. Well, hey. So this is a internet, positive broadcast. The internet worked. The internet hey, next worked. Time, next time, come over to my house, Dave, where we have, like, really stellar internet. Okay? I will. I will. I okay. will. I will jump off the plane and drive straight to your house. There you go. All right. Well, for Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, and we will talk to you again next time, hopefully, but unlikely, with a more optimistic broadcast. Yeah, Happy New Year, everyone.